Welcome to the Yoga Hour, offering insights and practices for spiritually conscious living in today's world. Here is your host, Dr. Laurel Trujillo. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, where we talk about yoga in all its depth and breadth as a path to spiritually conscious, fulfilled living in today's world. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the show. Today, we'll be discussing how yoga can help us to stay calm and steady during times of change. I'm really delighted to be joined today by Nina Zolotov. Nina is the author of the book we are discussing today, Yoga for Times of Change. She is a certified yoga teacher, as well as a longtime yoga writer. Nina Zolotov teaches workshops and series classes on yoga for emotional well-being, stress, better sleep, cultivating equanimity, and healthy aging. She's also the editor-in-chief of the Yoga for Healthy Aging blog and is the co-author of Yoga for Healthy Aging with Baxter Bell and Yoga and Moving Towards Balance, both with Rodney Yee. Nina Zolotov's website is yogafortimesofchange.com. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, Nina Zolotov. I'm absolutely delighted you could join me on the podcast today. Thanks so much for having me. Before we dive into our dialogue about how yoga helps us to stay calm and steady during times of change, let's begin with a yoga moment. Let's begin as we mean to go on. Let's begin with a, uh, a moment of mindfulness. Oh. So let's start by bringing our attention to our bodies, whatever we're doing, just feeling our bodies in space. And in particular, feeling the surfaces that support our weight, whether we're standing or walking, sitting or driving, just taking a moment to feel how our weight is supported by whatever it rests upon. And then turning our attention to the breath, and just noticing as we take a fully conscious breath, the next inhale and exhale. On the next inhale, feeling the cool air in the nostrils. And on the exhale, feeling how the air has been warmed as it passes through our lungs. And then continuing to just be present with our breath, just noticing not trying to change the natural flow. As we rest here, here's something to contemplate. This is from Roy Eugene Davis, a direct disciple of Paramahansa Yogananda. From his book, The Science of Self-Realization, which is Mr. Davis's translation and commentary on Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. This is from verse two, sorry, chapter two, verse 42. He translates the verse as contentment provides supreme peace and happiness. Contentment in all circumstances can be maintained by being self-aware while dispassionately observing thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and the emergence and disappearance of transitory events. Once again, contentment in all circumstances can be maintained 
by being self-aware while dispassionately observing thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and the emergence and disappearance of transitory events. Once again, Nina Zolotov, welcome to the Yoga Hour. I've really been looking forward to this conversation and being able to discuss your book with you. The full title is Yoga for Times of Change, Practices and Meditations for Moving Through Stress, Anxiety, Grief, and Life's Transitions. And to me, it was a very timely book, a very timely title. for many of us, these past few years have been especially stressful with change seeming to accelerate. Of course, change, as we all know, is a very normal process, but at times can really seem overwhelming. Yoga philosophy teaches that there is nothing in this manifest world that doesn't change. And in that, I would also include our bodies and our minds because we're part of that manifest world. There's nothing permanent except for the changeless self self with a capital S, but we can have trouble dealing with change, even good change. So what was it that led you to write this book at this time? Well, believe it or not, I came up with the idea before the pandemic. (laughs) It was actually in 2019. And my editor at Shambhala asked me to write a book by myself. (laughs) So I thought that was an exciting opportunity that I shouldn't pass up. And I started to think about you know, things that I hadn't written about yet. Um, And um, also, you know, just personally, how yoga had helped me during my lifetime, as I moved through the changes that we all move through and kinds of changes in our personal lives. So um, I put together a proposal about that. And at the time, I was really um, focused more on what I called, and you said you like this term, the Rocky Road ice cream of life, which by by that I meant the sort of personal changes we all go through, whether it's like, you know, uh, moving to a new place or getting married or getting divorced, having children, having your children leave home, um, losing your job, maybe. uh, And it just, you know, the kinds of things that happen to all of us and getting older and all that. Um, so, but the actual writing of the book took place during the pandemic. And that really changed my thinking about some things, particularly, um, you know, the kinds of changes that we experience in our lives. I, you know, I realized right away, it's not just personal, right? It's, it's global and community-based and, you know, um, there's political situations, you know, um, like a war, like that, you know, I'm thinking about that now too. We have a, a war in Europe, there's global climate change issues, there's the pandemic and so on. And, you know, during the writing of the book, it was a really hard year for us out in Northern California because we had a severe fire season, you know, a very contentious election, a lot of social unrest, and the pandemic all in 2020 happening all at the same time. So, you know, some of our 
smaller personal issues were over overshadowed by all that. And I really saw around me how people, you know, said they were crying every day, they were not sleeping, they were having anxiety attacks and so on. And so I first of all realized how important my book was more than ever. And then, you know, I also realized how even how those type of changes, which we didn't necessarily think about, you know, can have a really profound effect on, you know, our mental health and, you know, feelings of uh, being unbalanced and so on. Yeah. Well, I love how you have uh, woven all of the yoga teachings and the many, many tools that yoga gives us to deal with change really throughout the book. And it has made me reflect on, you know, what a what a treasure trove that really is for us, that there is so much within yoga that can really help us in times of change. One of the things that you started with was a definition of a yogi from the Bhagavad Gita, verse uh, 14, uh, um, sorry, uh, 14.23. Um, and uh, the translation you give is who unperturbed by changing conditions sits apart and watches and says the powers of nature go round and remains firm and shakes not. Well, so beautiful. Who unperturbed by changing conditions sits apart and watches and says the powers of nature go round and remains firm and shakes not. What was it that drew you to that definition of a yogi? Well, first of all, that particular translation, excuse me, by Juan Mascaro, you know, does use the term change. So it was so utterly appropriate for the theme of my book. Um, But second of all, I I really think um, the Bhagavad Gita and the way it defines yoga as equanimity um, is a, more relevant for householders, the ordinary people that, you know, are my readers as opposed to renunciates than um, the one in the Yoga Sutras, which was intended more for renunciates. And, um, you know, I like to talk about how Arjuna, the hero of the Bhagavad Gita, is more like the rest of us. He has a family. He has multiple wives, actually. I like to share a painting that I have of him with one of his wives. So, and he has, you know, he has a job, he's a warrior, that's his job, but he has duties in the world. He's not withdrawing from the world. And, you know, the the advice he gets about incorporating yoga into his life is uh, very relevant for, for all of us householders in terms of, you know, being, um, uh, finding ways to live in the world with some measure of equanimity. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, that's really the major reason why I turned to the Gita for the definitions of yoga. Yeah. You spend some time in the book reflecting on what is it about change that can cause us so much suffering? So I thought it'd be good to ask you about that and, and also to mention, which you go over in the book, sometimes, well, pretty much all the time, I think even if the change is good, it can also be stressful. There can also be, if you have a, a, you know, for example, if you get a new good job, you may be leaving behind some uh, coworkers that you really enjoy. Um, So can you say a little bit more about that? What is it about change that make, that causes us so much suffering? Well, yeah, you know, I'm I'm just going to go in a different order than I might normally do because I actually 
remember the experience of starting a new job that I really wanted and I was very excited about. And I just remember how stressful that first day was. And it wasn't even because I was losing something by leaving my old environment and my old coworkers. But, you know, just the day itself being in a new environment, it was crazy. I they didn't have an office for me, so I had to sit in the kitchen, literally, because it was a startup company. And there were people coming in and out all day getting things out of the fridge. And then my boss just gave me this giant, like, pile of things to read because he was too busy to talk to me. And, you know, I came home that day and I was like, can I quit yet? This is my husband. So, you know, basically... Uh, any kind of change in our lives, whether it's good or bad, you know, causes our nervous system to go on the alert to meet a challenge. So, you know, I had a challenge to meet too. So even if it's a good challenge, you're still like stressed because your nervous system is like, you got to do something, you know, wake up, things are happening, you know, so whether it's good or bad, your nervous system will, you know, respond with an urge to uh, have you face because your normal routine might not work to have you face your new challenge, whether it's a good challenge or a bad challenge. I mean, a bad challenge might be, you know, your house catches on fire. So people like to use metaphor. Uh, they like to talk about primitive man and like the tiger or whatever outside the cave. But, you know, even in modern life, we have like, you know, emergencies, right? Or yeah. Medical emergencies. So yeah, you get kicked into action. Your nervous system's like, oh, you need to move into action. So that even happens with positive changes as well as negative ones. You uh, talk about the uh, teaching in the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali that tells us that both attachment to pleasure and aversion to pain causes suffering. So would you speak more about that, about both, uh, um, you know, the raga and devesha, you know, these are the, you know, the Sanskrit words for, you know, attachment and aversion. How would you like to, you know, just expand on that and talk about talk about the suffering that we get with change? Um, well, attachment to pleasurable things. Attachment is usually to things that make us happy or cause us pleasure. You know, it's a good thing because that's why we keep eating good food and having sex. And that helps us to have children, which is how we evolved as a species, uh, you know, and other other things like that that are good for us. Um, it creates uh, suffering because when we can't have the things that we're attached to, um, we get upset. So, you know, I mean, at the simplest level, obviously, like if somehow we're like out of food, you know, we get upset and uh, afraid and, you know, try to do something about getting more food. That's, that's why that impulse is in there, but you know, it may also apply to something that's not life threatening, <laughs> like, <laughs> like uh, you miss your, your town where you grew up and all your friends are because you had to move, you know, um, and those are profound, you know, emotional attachments or whatever. So um, that's a big part of it. And during times of change, you know, you often will miss the way things used to be, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, pandemic is a perfect example of that because our lives changed so much and, you know, everybody was missing, like being able to see friends and family all the time and being able to work at the office and, <laughs> you know, not having to spend so much time inside, 
you know, just the way their lives used to be. So that's an example of how attachment to good things can cause us suffering during times of change. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for for uh, aversion to to um, bad things, um, sometimes we have to do things that we don't like, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that causes us discomfort and anxiety and stress. Um, so, you know, like an example, but uh, just, you know, simple thing like doing your taxes or whatever. <laughs> you know, we don't like it, but we have to do it. So there's always going to be things that we don't like. And during times of change, then um, new things may come up that you have to do that you don't like. Um, so you know, I'm just looking across the street out my window and there's my new neighbors moving in. And I just you remember how hard moving packing all the boxes was. But, you know, like during the pandemic too, so change, I mean, I'm just using that example of change because we're all still in that mindset is, you know, there was a lot of things that we had to do that we didn't like. And especially like people who, you know, were living alone and they had to spend so much time alone. I mean, all of us had to spend more time alone than we were used to, but, you know, that was very hard and it's not really a natural state for humans. So, um, but, you know, like I watched my cousin go through that and, you know, like all the things that she was doing to, to meet the challenge of living alone and right spending 24 seven alone. So yeah, that's how change plays into the idea of, um, of aversion of bringing us things that we don't want to do um, that we have to face. And as you point out, the, um, you know, yoga writings, including uh, um, yoga sutras and the um, Bhagavad Gita, which are the two main classical texts that are, you know, that are taught from at the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, the meditation center that that um, sponsors this program. Uh, at any rate, uh, equanimity is one of the big things. You know, equanimity facing facing change with equanimity, which to me is really kind of what your what your book is all about, um, developing that equanimity. And even if we develop a little bit, um, I think you quoted from my uh, my favorite verse in the Bhagavad Gita, which is two forty, which is even a little bit of this practice removes great fear. Um, and to me, that's, you know, that practice of equanimity, you know, fits along there. So did you want to say anything about that, about the development of equanimity kind of as a goal, I guess, of um, how we would then, you know, uh, face uh, times of change and um, moving how we can move more gracefully through life's transitions? Yeah, you know, that's definitely what what the book is about. Um, because, you know, and for me, that's been my journey with yoga because I'm somebody who used to suffer a lot from anxiety. Um, And that was like a whole thing. Anxiety is sort of like based on fears about the future and fears of change, possible change. (laughs) I think it's interesting about anxiety is like, it's not necessarily, some of it's about change that's going to happen, but some of it's about things that may never happen as well. Because your mind just goes spinning into the future, like what if this and what if that? So yes, learning to be comfortable with changing circumstances and also with uncertainty, with the unknown um, is really essential. And I felt that yoga has helped me with that so much. So that was like a prime motivation for me wanting to write the book because I wanted to 
give other people access to that information that have taken me quite a long time to collect actually and research and understand and practice and you know have it all in one place so you know I, I would say you know it's kind of a twofold thing because there's like yoga techniques that you can use like when you're feeling upset and unbalanced or anxious or angry or depressed to, to kind of calm yourself down and uplift yourself a little and kind of balance yourself emotionally, which will help you get through. And then there's a whole, you know, the whole philosophical approach of, you know, understanding the yoga uh, approach to impermanence and equanimity can help you kind of um, work with your thoughts and feelings and kind of change your perspective on life. So you're not really expecting things to be the way you used to um, can help you become more comfortable with uncertainty and change sort of overall. So it's a combination of two sort of like treating immediate symptoms and discomforts to try to make you feel better. And then sort of for the long-term, like changing your orientation on life. Right. Um, so it's one that's more realistic. I mean, I think it's a big problem in the West. There's this whole idea somehow we can control our destinies. You know, we should have goals and we should, you know, have a bucket list. And we should like check everything off and, you know, just like organize our life. And that's just going to lead to frustration and happiness, you know, because the bucket list items won't make us happy anyway. And because we're just moving on to the next one. And, um, you know, and some of them won't be able to be achieved and our whole lives can change in an instant. And, you know, we have to, you know, be more comfortable dealing with that. And so the yoga understanding of life in the material world, as you mentioned, is, is much more realistic and helpful, I think. Um, and so trying to like move toward understanding and learning more about that and, you know, uh, working on um, accepting impermanence. That's my last chapter, um, I think is an essential part of of uh, cultivating equanimity. Mm -hmm. I liked how you pointed out that anxiety is really about something that's not happening in the moment. It's something that's about the future. And in particular, as you were saying, you get into this, if this, then that, if this, then that. So if this happens, then that might happen. And if that might happen, then this might, I mean, you, you get into a whole, like a whirlwind of thoughts. And it's not about what's happening now, but it's about all these hypotheticals about what may, you know, what may happen in the future. One of the things that you, one of the techniques, uh, yoga techniques that you talk about in the book is focusing on the breath, a very common pranayama practice that is taught to calm the mind so that we can move into the flow of meditation. Um, but for many people, breath control or breath techniques don't work for different reasons. For some, these techniques actually create more anxiety. So would you say a little bit more about that? And then what if if you are finding that, you know, a breathing technique is not working for you, what might someone use? Yeah, I think that's really important because um, I think there's some myths in yoga. And one of them is that, you know, all breath practices are calming or the working or working with your breath or uh, even practicing breath awareness as we did at the very beginning with your practice is always calming. So, so first of all, I wanna say that uh, all breath practices are actually not calming. Um, 
there are breath practices that are stimulating. And those are breath practices where the inhalation is longer than the exhalation. So, you know, whether you're doing a timed breath or, you know, where you're hold, you know, or you're holding your breath at the end of your inhalation, somebody was describing a breath to me called box breath or something. Yeah. It adds up to, to, you know, taking a lot long inhalation, holding your breath for a long time and then exhaling. And that's going to be actually stimulating, not calming. So that's important. It's important for, you know, and I explained the physiology behind that in my book and mentioned different breath practices, you know, that I recommend staying away from when you're feeling, especially feeling anxious or hyper or stressed. So there's calming breath practices, and those are breath practices where your exhalation is longer than your inhalation, Mm -hmm. because it's related to how your uh, exhalation and inhalation affect your heart rate, actually. So those breath practices, you know, would be the ones that'd be a better idea to practice when you're feeling, um, so, you know, just like exhalation pausing or just consciously exhaling lengthening your exhalation and just ignoring your inhalation. Those are the simplest ones. So those would be the best ones to practice when you're feeling stressed and and anxious and all that. Now, even saying that there are some people who, especially anxious people who find it makes them more anxious to pay any attention to their breath at all. It's such an essential, you know, part of being alive that somehow when they like focus on it, it, it just makes them anxious. And I, I had a student I was working with who was like that. And so for those people, they just shouldn't work with their breath at all. You know, no matter what anyone tells you, you have to trust your intuition. That's one of the best, biggest messages of my book, actually. It's like, you have to try things. Here's a lot of things to try and find out how you react to them. And if they don't work for you, they're not working. <laughs> and so try something else. So, you know, if, if focusing on your breath at all makes you anxious, then you should really turn to other things. And um, there's a lot of possibilities because there's a lot of different yoga poses that can help calm you, like supported inverted poses, like legs up the wall pose. Um, you could do active standing poses because that like engages your bot, your mind into your body. And that might like calm your mind because you're focusing on, you know, just feeling your body um, and, um, you know, stretching can sometimes really times release physical tension and that in itself can relieve stress from your mind and restorative yoga and yoga nidra relaxation practices um, can help some people because, you know, that physical relaxation ties to into mental relaxation and so on. So there's actually a lot of alternatives. I have more alternatives in my book for uh, things that you can do besides bringing your awareness to your breath. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's one of the things I really appreciated about your book. And I especially like the section that you have on supported inverted uh, poses, because I do think physiologically it's it's something that a lot of people don't don't uh, realize the effects that it can have in terms of triggering the relaxation response. Why don't I just take a moment to remind people that I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of The Yoga Hour, and today I'm here with Nina Zalatov. Nina is the author of the book we're discussing today, Yoga for Times of Change. She's also the editor-in-chief of the Yoga for Healthy Aging blog and is the co-author of Yoga for Healthy Aging with Baxter Bell. She also has other books, Yoga and Moving Towards Balance with Rodney Yee. Her website is yogaforTimesOfChange.com. 
www.yogaoursoul.com and we will be posting the link uh, to her website on our website, theyogahour.com. We welcome your comments and questions. You can contact us via that website, theyogahour.com, where you can also sign up for our mailing list. So uh, I, I kind of threw out a question there, Nina, and then didn't give you a chance to um, to uh, uh, answer. But when, when you um, think about those uh, supported inverted posts, well, first of all, well, just talk about the supported inverted pose. So what does that mean to you know, be a supported inverted pose? <laughs> right. An inverted pose in yoga is actually any pose where your heart is higher than your head. So we, we try often think of inverted poses as being the full inversions like uh, headstand, shoulder stand, and so on. But there's a lot of poses where your heart is only slightly higher than your head. Um, there's some where, um, for example, in a standing forward bend, um, your upper, you know, your body, your upper body is upside down, your legs aren't, but that still is uh, having the calming effect because your, your heart is above your head. Um, let's keep going with standing forward bend just so I can illustrate what I mean by the difference between supported and not. So yeah, a standing forward bend, you know, just normally done is somewhat calming. But to make it really calming, you want to take a lot of the effort of doing the pose so you're really comfortable. So the way you would support a standing forward bend is by putting a chair in front of you and some padding on the seat of the chair to make it a little more comfortable and then bend over only so your arms are folded like on, on the chair and put your head onto your uh, and on your arms. So you're not as far down, but you're really um supported and the pose is going to be a lot easier and you're not going to like feel a lot of overstretching and you know pain sensations or whatever so you know that one is actually so soothing um and also the uh widespread standing forward bend you know pasarita padottanasana that one done the same way so calming so i do that with my bed just at the foot of my bed and just instantly feel relaxed and, right, and that just is for the, for your legs to be wider apart. Yeah, yeah some people might find that more comfortable. It depends right. on your body type, actually, um, whether you find um, having your legs wide apart or close together. Um, and, you know, legs up the wall pose um, with support of the support you get is from the wall. When you lift your pelvis up, if your back is flat on the floor, your heart is not higher on the higher than your head but when you lift your pelvis up with a bolster or a stack of blankets put your legs up the wall you know that's a pose I find really comfortable um then you get the same effects because you've got sort of a gradual um upside down position and if the legs up the wall pose isn't comfortable some people will find that it's not because of their legs are tight the one where you actually have a stack of blankets in front of a chair and you put your Right. legs on the, your bent legs on the chair uh, which is sometimes called instant maui <laughs> i call it easy inverted pose um it it's that's a very accessible version that you know most people can get comfortable in right so i think you were talking about the physiology of it you know how it can trigger the relaxation response right yeah if you want me to go into that i can um i didn't go into it heavily in the book, but it has to do with how your blood pressure is regulated. So this is something I, I learned from Roger Cole, who's a, a younger teacher and a sleep scientist. And he studied the physiology of 
of relaxation and also the relationship between posture and relaxation. So, you know, like when we get up out of bed and we're standing up, so we'll be lying down then we move to standing up, that raises um, our blood pressure because our, our body senses and the sensors for our blood pressure are just actually in our neck and in our heart. And when we stand up, that makes the blood like move down towards our feet and our sensors go, oh no, need to, to raise the blood pressure. And that's because, you know, you're going from relaxation to like moving about your day. You need to have that in the morning. Right. So, and when you lie down, it does the opposite thing because as you lie down, the blood rush moves more back towards your, your neck and heart and your, your, uh, your sensors like trigger message to your brain. Oh, lying down now, relaxing now, you know, lower my blood pressure. So when you go upside down, <laughs> it's even more dramatic because more blood rushes to your heart and to the, the veins on the sides of your neck. I mean, the arteries, sorry, uh, the carotid arteries. And um, so the nervous system is like, oh no, you know, <laughs> must like lower the blood pressure and slow the heartbeat right away. Cause you know, like it's time to relax. And, um, and so that's what happens when you're in those poses. It takes a while to have, have a really strong effect because your body has to do the whole process. And it also lowers your stress hormones, which is amazing because mm -hmm. you know, it's taking them out of your blood. Um, so it's like way better than sleep for, for, uh, you know, providing like calm and relaxation. So that's the relaxation response. So sort of disorganized presentation because I wanted to make it fast, but. Oh, no, no, that was yeah. great. Yeah, no, I, I wanted to, uh, listeners to hear about that. And if, if listeners haven't yet tried uh, some kind of a supported inverted pose, um, any of the ones that you recommended. So legs up the wall, which as you said, you know, can be really, really simple. If you have your hips up on a blanket or a bolster, and then you just really put your legs up the wall, or if that's not comfortable, putting them up on a chair, you know, just having the, you know, your, the calves of your, of your legs supported on the seat of the chair, uh, or on your bed, if you're in your bedroom, you know, and you want to um, do this by the side of your bed, all those are easy, or the ones that you mentioned, the standing poses of using a chair, you know, bending forward, forward, um, supporting your head on your, you know, your crossed arms or with your legs either, you know, together or farther apart. These are great ideas. And if, if listeners haven't tried that, um, it's actually pretty amazing. If you can get into a pose and you can stay there for several minutes, um, you get, can get your physiology really working for you in a really, in a really lovely way. So anyway, I just thought I'd take a moment and, and uh, say a little bit more about that. You do go into a lot of, of um, particular asana routines in your book. And in particular, you have um, suggested routines for coping with stress, for anxiety and depression, and for grief. So it's a really this huge collection of, of these little, and I'm talking about there's a short, you know, sequence of poses that you could do. Um, you also talk about the restorative poses and what makes a restorative pose and how you can practice it more in a restorative way, which is meaning that you get into a position and you stay into it, you know, for, for a longer period of time. Um, when people think about yoga poses, I think there's a couple of things that come up. So, so first of all, um, how can we overcome this idea that people have that, that doing yoga poses, Hatha yoga is limited to people who have strong, flexible bodies. There's so many people out there who might benefit from yoga, but they have this image 
of from the front of a yoga magazine that they saw at the newsstand or whatever. And it's always these like super strong, healthy bodies, very um, difficult poses that look impossible, like for the average person. So how can we overcome that? That's a really big challenge. <laughs> um, you know, I tried to uh, do some of that in my book by um, intentionally using very simple poses and always showing the versions with props. Um, and, you know, the more gentler versions of those poses, because I figured, well, the people who really know how to do the classic poses and have no problem with them, they don't need my help. So <laughs> I'm going to show the versions, you know, that the beginner might start with and feel comfortable with. Um, and then I also have a whole chapter in there on how to customize a yoga pose. And that includes information about like, you know, what if you want to, you, you're, you know, you need to do everything lying down or what if you do, need to do everything with the support of a wall and so on. So I wanted to empower people because, you know, showing every variation of every pose would be a multi-volume encyclopedia. <laughs> so I wanted to empower people to, you know, find their own ways through it. Um, but that being said, I was, yeah, just we, gonna say, I was just going to say that I really love that uh, that chapter in your book where you talk about making those adaptations. And I actually love the way that you started it, uh, where you said you had an epiphany while you were cooking. You were cooking this recipe yeah. and you realized that, you know, it had been a long time since you actually followed the real recipe. You know, it was all these changes that you made and you realized you could kind of do that with a, with the yoga poses. And, and I actually love it. Didn't you call it an epiphanette? Yeah, it's a small <laughs> epiphany. <laughs> <laughs> and then a friend of mine made up that word. Right. No, that's great. And then you talked about how um, you know you can you can like you play with a recipe, you can play with a pose, yeah. and you give these great suggestions about how people can simplify a pose to make it something that they can do because it is always something that people can do. Yoga can be really, really accessible to everyone. It is for everybody, um, no matter what shape your body is in. And I think you did a, a real service by explaining that to people about how they can how they can make it work for them using props and you know using a different uh, using a different um, uh, position, leaving something out. I think is one of the things that you said, which is great. <laughs> well, yeah, because you know I've been through all that myself because I've been practicing so long and, you know, I never gave up practicing. So, you know, I had a frozen shoulder. So, you know, I had to figure out how to do yoga without using that arm, for example. And I would go to class anyway. And I would just, you know, sometimes my teacher might suggest something, but mostly I like could come up with it on my own in my home practice. And I just, you know, go ahead and, you know, do whatever I need to do, like not moving that one arm. So yeah, that, that, that's all important. It is a big challenge though. Um, so I'd like to put a shout out to the Accessible Yoga Organization because, you know, I, and I've, I've worked with them for a while and, you know, their mission is to make everyone understand how yoga is accessible to everyone. And so, you know, using photographs of people who, you know, have different body types, different ages, you know, um, different races, um, you know, people with some disabilities, whether in a wheelchair, or I saw like a beautiful photograph of this woman doing warrior two with a cane. So I'd never seen that before. She wasn't using a wall or anything. But she needed a little support for her balance. So she's out there, you know, with her arms to the side, but one hand has, uh, has a cane. Beautiful. So yeah, sharing, 
more for all of us sharing more photos like that um, will help counteract this the glamorized you know athletic sort of image of of yoga which is really nothing to do with what it's all about yeah absolutely or maybe it's only the simplest most kind of um you know uh maybe most accessible but also just the beginning you know it really is something that can bloom you know from that point mm -hmm. i wanted to ask you about meditation so one of the things that we talked about uh, is equanimity and um, the quote that I had at the beginning talked about uh, using dispassionate observation. So being able to be that observer of what is happening in the mind or what is happening in the body um, through that observation, we a space can open up or we can perhaps learn not to be so attached to our thoughts. So would you say more about that? How have you found that meditation helps support us in coping with change? Um. Well, I think um, meditation trains us to be present with what's happening now um, in the present and, and avoid dwelling on the past or uh, obsessing about the future. So we talked about the feelings of uh, anxiety and how that's sort of future-based. And, you know, you can look at depression um, and regret and... Um, nostalgia for the past is also sort of interfering with your ability to be content in the present. So, you know, as we meditate, we're focused either on one thing, like we do in concentration meditation, um, whether it's a mantra or your breath or sound or whatever, and that's in the present. Or if you're doing mindfulness meditation, you're also concentrating on something you're currently feeling in your body or an emotion you're currently feeling. And as your mind wanders away, you keep bringing it back. So you're training your mind to keep you in the present, which I think is really important because then in your everyday life, um, uh, you can do that. So, you know, that's something that I do because I mentioned I have anxious thoughts, like I will interrupt that, I'll notice oh, you're just thinking about a bunch of stuff that might not even happen, like stop and like, oh, you know, so sometimes I'm just because I don't know, walk or something, I'll let, no, look at this flower, or, you know, you know, or like, I, or I'll just say a little thing to myself or remind myself not to do that, to bring myself into the present. So, you know, that's, that's how it takes it into our everyday lives. And it's not just a meditation experience. Mm -hmm. Um, I also think that, especially with concentration meditation, so people don't normally compare the different types of meditation. And I, um, that's something that I have done in my book because I think it's important for people to understand and then choose which one's going to work for them. With concentration meditation, um, you know, you, you let go of distracting thoughts and emotions as you notice them. So you keep coming back to whatever you're focused on, your mantra, your breath. And if you notice you're thinking about something upsetting or thinking about anything, as a matter of fact, or feeling something, you just like go, oh, you know, without judgment, you're like, return to the object. So you're letting go over and over and over. So that's also training you so that when those things come up um, in life, you can you know, interrupt the cycle, like interrupt the cycle of anxiety or nostalgia or, you know, 
wistful thinking about like all the things you've lost or regrets about stuff you've done and to like notice, oh wait, I'm not in the present. And those, those things are not serving me right now. Um, and, you know, find a way to let it go. And in my book, I actually have a lot of yogic techniques for how to let go, but, um, you know, there's many ways that you can do that. Um, so those, that's how I see it. Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, no, I think that was great what you just said. And, and uh, as, I, as you were speaking, I was thinking about focus and that ability to let go of a distraction and return to the point of focus. It's like a muscle in the same way that we can build the strength of a muscle, you know, by lifting, <clears throat> lifting it repeatedly or, you know, lifting progressively heavier, you know, uh, weights. We can also build our capacity to focus, you know, and to let go of a distraction and return our mind. And then the other thing that you said was the self-study part, which is part of uh, the three main practices of Kriya Yoga that Patanjali talks about in the beginning of the second chapter of the Yoga Sutras, which are um, self-discipline, um, self-study uh, and then self-surrender. And really the process that you were talking about, it kind of involved all three because it's like the, you know, the, the uh, uh, self-study, we notice when our, you know, when our mind becomes distracted and the self-discipline is pulling it back, you know, and, and, the, mm -hmm. and the surrender is like letting go of whatever that distraction was, you know, letting it go and then bringing our attention back to the point of focus. So I have found that to be incredibly helpful in my own life. And I also like how you point out there are many types of meditation. And the most important thing is to meditate and not necessarily whatever particular uh, form of meditation that you do that you do choose. So so that that was that was great. I wanted to um, have a chance to ask you about cultivating the opposites. <clears throat> cultivating the opposites is another teaching in the Yoga Sutras. It's a it's a it's a practice. So when you describe this to your students or in your book, how do you explain the importance of it? And then how do you suggest practicing it? Um, well, just the basic explanation is this idea that when you notice yourself having um, you know, they use the word negative in a way. I don't really like to use the word negative thoughts because the thoughts are our thoughts are all natural and we can't stop them from occurring, which is something most people don't realize. They just sort of pop up based on our, our emotions or bodies, their minds are just creating these thoughts all the time. But when we notice we're having a thought, let's say that's not serving us. That's what I could, could say. Um, uh, because like an angry thought might be valuable. Like an angry thought might be like, I'm angry because of the way these people are being treated. You right. know, that's a helpful thought. And maybe you want to take some action. But if you have a thought that's not serving you and that's just disrupting your equanimity and doesn't call for you to, you know, take some good action, um, you can get it out of your mind. This is one technique for letting go by then consciously thinking an opposite thought. Mm -hmm. So something that's more positive. Um, so like the example I use is um, in life, just something like, I can't deal with this. You know, that isn't serving you. Um, and you could try just like saying to yourself, I can be okay with this. And the reason I use that example is because I, I, I think it's important to be realistic in choosing the positive and not say like, I can be happy with this because it might even be, well, it might be impossible or it might be inappropriate. Right. So I'm going to use a really heavy example, but like, say you know, like when my mother died or whatever, like that was really upsetting. Well, you know, and 
I would just tell myself I can be okay with this. So that's very different than trying to say, I can be happy with this, which doesn't make any sense and isn't possible anyway. We don't need to be happy all the time. We just need to maintain a little equanimity as we move through our grief or sorrow or whatever. And that's, you know, so that's, that's the main point I want to make about it is, you know, to kind of tell yourself things that you would tell to a friend to support them and encourage them and not, you know, because people will say like, how can I be happy if, you know, because I've heard, I've heard teachers say, oh, you can just tell yourself to be happy, but you know, that's not life. It's not natural. And so, yeah, being really very realistic can help. And it's helped me because, you know, I just moved my way, mind away from feeling I couldn't deal with something to, um, to finding a way to encourage myself to believe that, that I could yeah. or whatever. Well, I actually like that. I, I can be okay with that. I can be yeah. okay with that. To me, that's a statement of equanimity. Right. Statement of equanimity. It doesn't mean you have to love it. It doesn't mean right. it's fantastic. You know, right. <laughs> it's delightful. <laughs> but you can say, you know, I can be okay with that. I mean, to me, that you know, that's a yeah. that, that's that's a worthy thing to you know move towards. So I think that's great. Yeah, it's huge. It can be life changing to be okay with hard things. Yeah. So you write that cultivating universal kindness can support us in coping with change. And you share that teaching uh, from the Yoga Sutra. So will you talk about that? How does cultivating kindness support us in coping with change? Yeah, universal kindness is a, is a, a term that covers like four different practices. And um, so I'll mention all of them. But, um, you know, this is another way of letting go. And in a way, it's a good, it's a way of coming up with opposite thoughts or feelings when there's usually regarding people, because, you know, it has to do with, um, um, let's see, what are the four? (laughs) Uh, Compassion, uh, sympathetic joy, uh, uh, dispassion, and um, which is the, I have a list of this somewhere here. Sorry. No, sorry. Uh, friendship, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. So, um, yeah, I mean, part of the things as, as our lives change and we go through difficulties or whatever that makes us really unhappy is comparing ourselves to others. Right. So, you know, having feelings of, of envy, of uh, anger, or to people who have like maybe caused a bad change for us, intolerance you know, jealousy and stuff like that, you know, those disturb our equanimity. So, so this is a technique for thinking about someone or something, uh, some group of people and, you know, actively fostering a feeling of compassion towards them, um, of sympathetic joy for them. That means like, I'm happy on your behalf, even though you have all the stuff I want for myself. Uh, you know, friendship for them or, um, you know, or just equanimity for, for people that, you know, maybe are really terrible, um, and doing terrible things and you don't really want to be happy for them, but you can just learn to be a little less, you know, less upset with them or like angry, angry about 
them personally. The the example I use in my book is is Gandhi's attitude towards the British, because um, he was, and a lot of people don't even realize this, he was one of the great yogis of the 20th century. And, you know, he, he didn't, he said he didn't hate British people. You know, he intentionally did not hate British people for what they had done to his country, even though he was trying to, you know, get them to leave, which he succeeded in. Um, he just hated the acts that they had done or he hated the situation that was occurring but not personal hatred towards the people so you know that was a way of him maintaining his equanimity some something he really worked on in his life uh, while he was fighting for social justice so it doesn't mean you can't like stand up for what's right take actions to fight against evildoers or you know injustice but you know without like getting yourself all upset and trying to maintain your balance as you move through it. And with that, we have come to the close. So as we as we close, what words of inspiration or encouragement would you like to leave with our listeners? I really liked what you said about how there are so many possibilities in the book and so many different possibilities for how yoga can help people. So I think that's the most important message of my book. I, I really think that um, that everyone can benefit from yoga and its teachings. Um, and that even though everyone is different and they have different circumstances, different things will, they'll, they'll find different things helpful, but there's such a huge range of choices, mm-hmm. you know, and that's the beautiful thing about it. It's not just saying, oh, meditate or be in the present. There are all these poses, we didn't talk about that, that can uplift you, which I talk about, or energize you, or calm you, or soothe you as well. And then there's all the breath practices. And then there's like these mental, you know, yogic techniques for working with your thoughts. And I think if you just find one or two things that you love, that can be huge, that can be enough. Like, you know, during the pandemic, I was doing legs up the wall pose, like we talked about every um, earlier, every single day for 20 minutes, because I kind of wanted to be preventative and proactive. I was like, okay, these people are crying every day. I'm going to do this pose every day. Yeah. And to try to keep myself more centered through the whole, whole thing. And it really really helped me. So that's the encouraging thing. You don't need to do everything in the book. You don't need to, you know, do two hours of yoga a day. You can just explore and experiment and find and start with one or two things. And that's pretty easy. Just practice one or two things. And then later on, you can add more if you have a new circumstance, you get bored of the old thing, or you want to try something new. Yeah. Well, that's lovely. That's delightful. You've been listening to The Yoga Hour. It's been my pleasure to share this time with you. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, producer and host of the show. And my guest today again has been Nina Zolotov and her last name is spelled Z-O-L-O-T-O-W. Zolotov is the pronunciation, Nina Zolotov. Nina teaches workshops and series classes on yoga for emotional well-being, stress, better sleep, Cultivating Equanimity and Healthy Aging. She is the editor-in-chief of the Yoga for Healthy Aging blog and is the co-author of Yoga for Healthy Aging book with Baxter Bell. Her website is yogafortimesofchange.com and the link to her website will be posted on our website, theyogahour.com. Thank you so much, Nina, for joining me today on the show. Thank you so much. 
for having me and for having such a good conversation. All right. For listeners, we hope you'll join us in the many online programs offered by the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, which currently offers daily online meditation in the morning from 6.30 to 7.30 a.m. in the afternoon from 4 to 4.30 p.m. and on Monday evenings at 7.30 p.m. Those are all Pacific times. We also offer a Sunday satsang at 10 a.m. each week. Join us next time on the Yoga Hour when I will be joined by yoga therapist, Ayurvedic health counselor, and the president of the International Association of Yoga Therapists, Molly McManus. We'll be discussing how the practices of yoga help us to live skillfully and bring more joy to our lives. The Yoga Hour is a service project of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, a meditation center in the Kriya Yoga tradition. Remember to subscribe to the Yoga Hour podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you to the Yoga Hour team, founder and spiritual director, Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, assistant producers Anne Hayes, Mickey Coronado, and Christine Sote. I look forward to being with you again. Until then, remember, you carry your own healing and wholeness within you. Share your peace and joy with all you meet. Bye now.